One of the most significant identifying features of a restored gospel is the ability to worship inside holy temples by way of sacred covenants. This practice, both ancient and eternal, rolls generations into one great whole, piercing the veil of death and shattering the confines of time. That heavenly connection centers on the Son of God, who has fulfilled all of His Father's purposes since the beginning. He is light. He is truth. He is compassion. He is reconciliation. He is the great magnifier of our every godly effort, and He will deliver. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit can teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. The biggest legacy I want to leave for my family is that they knew that without any doubt, I loved Jesus Christ. I hope the legacy that I leave for my family uh, is a legacy of faith. Um, that even in hard times and you know when things aren't going your way, that you still have faith that things are going to be okay. I want to leave something that will be valuable to them in their lives, that will help them get through their lives, I guess. So just, I guess I want to leave a good example and um, something that they can like inherit. So being strong in the gospel, being a follower of Christ, things like that. Welcome everyone, thank you for being here today. Today's discussion topics come from our study of Genesis chapters 28 through 33. The first topic is, the temple connects us to heaven. And the second topic is, the Savior can help us overcome discord in our families. And to help us with our discussion, we'd like to welcome back our scholar, Melissa Inouye. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks for having me again. Melissa is a historian with the Church History Department. And Alex Boye is our special guest today. And Alex is a multicultural performer. He's a YouTube star, former member of the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. And most importantly, he is married with eight children. Thanks for being here, Alex. We're excited to talk with you today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. So Melissa, before we get into the individual topics, uh, would you mind giving us just an overview of these chapters we're gonna be covering today? Okay, so a lot is happening. Um, just very briefly, in chapter 28, Jacob is fleeing from Esau who wants to kill him. And he's been given the kind of plausible excuse by his parents, go get yourself a wife. And he runs into his cousin, Rachel, uh, and he falls in love with her. And there's a kind of beautiful betrothal type scene at the well. You know, he has to work for Laban and Laban is a kind of mean, greedy boss. Um, and he works for him for a long time. We have the kind of switcheroo of Rachel and Leah when they're trying to get married. But then he has to work for Jacob for a long time. Despite Laban's being a kind of stingy boss, Jacob prospers. And at a certain point, he's so successful that Laban and Laban's sons kind of resent him. So then he leaves. And as he's going away from the east, he's coming back towards um, the land where he was originally from, he sends a message to Esau. And then um, we had this beautiful kind of reconciliation. All right, well, let's, uh, let's dive into the first, uh, the first topic. The temple connects us to heaven. How do we go from everything you just said to we're talking about temples? So in chapter 28, when Jacob is kind of on this dangerous flight um, to the east to look for a wife and also to escape his brother, it says um, in chapter 28, verse 10, and he came upon a certain place and stopped there for the night for the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it at his head. And he lay down in that place and he dreamed. And look, a ramp, also translated as a ladder, 
was set against the ground with its top reaching the heavens. And look, messengers of God were going up and coming down it. And look, the Lord was poised over him. And he said, I, the Lord, am the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, to you I will give it and to your seed. And then he gives him this beautiful promise. Jacob awakes from his sleep and says, indeed, the Lord is in this place and I did not know. And he was afraid and he said, how fearsome is this, is this place? This can be but the house of God and this is the gate of the heavens. Can I ask you a question, Melissa? The, um, so it's this part where Jacob had the dream and it's in verse 12 when he says he dreamed the dream. Behold, it says a ladder that was set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And it says he beheld angels of God ascending and descending on it. Does, does that have to do with like progression? I think we can read it that way. I mean, these, that's the great thing about the Old Testament is it's so removed from our experience. We yeah. have a hard time seeing exactly what they were thinking. But yeah, he has this experience of God and he sees, yeah, he sees um, like a conduit, right? A kind yeah. of, he sees that the, that heaven and earth are not separate. There's okay. regular traffic. I think that's Afterwards. a beautiful way of thinking about that. So how do we make that connection between what Jacob is dreaming and how our modern day temples function or what the purpose for them is? Well, our modern day temples are, you know, it's most of us don't live in the wilderness. Most of us are not fleeing for our lives. But the modern day temples are places where we can go to be apart from the world. They're places where we believe that God comes and goes or that God dwells. So entering into the temple, we put on separate clothes. Um, when people are going through the temple for the first time, um, there are ordinances that further kind of create us as a new person. So all of those ways are, are ways of being separate from the world and of kind of um, coming to God on God's own terms. I love that. And Jacob is having this dream in this, in this sacred place. Are there some places outside of temples that you would consider uh, a sacred place for you? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I really feel strongly that it's something that we should all try and seek. My therapist, I went to see her and she was talking to me about, um, you know, trying to heal from some trauma. And she said something really powerful. She said, I want you to close your eyes and imagine your place. Where's the place that you feel safe? Where is your temple? And so I, I had this imagination of just being at the top of uh, one of the hills that overlooks the Capitol and Temple Square and everything, and I could see it. And then she said, okay, now I want you to imagine Jesus is right there with you in your favorite place. Now take your trauma and have him take it. This wasn't at the temple. I didn't even have to go anywhere. I was sitting on a couch and I got healing. How has that experience helped you in the healing process? What I'm learning is that there is no stronger healing than the healing that comes direct from the Savior and His atonement. Uh, sometimes there's a lot of incredible th resources out there in the world, you know, for different situations. People are struggling in so many different ways. And sometimes we, um, we might oversell those things as the, the, the way that you're going to get the healing. And sometimes it's really only temporary. And I feel that the only kind of healing that is not temporary, that can be permanent, is when we go to our Savior. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, is, there a, is there a place where you would consider to be a sacred place? You know, when maybe you can't make it to a temple, uh, what are those sacred places that exist for you? Sydney, go ahead. One of the most sacred places for me would be 
like in my room or like in the house somewhere, just like at home where I just feel the most comfortable and I would just be in silence or in peace, just listening to the Holy Ghost. What about your home makes it a sacred place? That my family is in it and it's like full of love. Your mom is just beaming. I love it. This is She's great. Like, yep, I did that. <laughs> <laughs> you can come over if you want. Mom, take a bow. That's so great. Okay, mom, you got to tell Beautiful. us. What do you do? What, how do you create that environment to where your daughter can just so easily throw out there, yeah, my home is my sacred place? We're a little team. and We're a family that we have to support each other. And just uh, if anyone has a problem, you know, we have to communicate and just share. Well, thank you so much. What a great example. Jasmine, go ahead. So I also think the home is one of the most places that feel closest to the temple, more so because when we go to the temple, those blessings that come from the temple, we bring that home to us. And so say you go do baptisms for the dead, you get those amazing blessings that you kind of help others in your kind. So you come home and then you see your siblings and stuff like that, that you just feel the need to talk to them, love them and do the same kindness that you would do at the temple for others who aren't alive, or but you just do it in person. So it's really nice that you can do that. That's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And please. Okay, this is a different side of it. I am a widow, and I've been a widow for 28 years. And when I was younger, I said, Heavenly Father, I could go through about anything if I didn't have to go through it alone. Well, my husband got sick at 40 and died at 50. And so I've been without him for 28 years. And I've been alone. But I really haven't. Because God's been with me. And when I go to bed at night, I get in my bed and I just cuddle up and I know that God is with me, and he got me through that day. That's your special place. <laughs> I love that. And isn't it true, special places like this, it's where we feel close to God. So we just talked about places that we go to where we feel close to God. If we can have sacred places anywhere in the world, then why do we need temples? There's a couple things we could say. One is that Latter-day Saint temples do a specific kind of work. It's not just a place where we go for ourselves. It's a place where we go for other people. And uh, the work that goes on in, in temples, in Latter-day Saint temples, are, is the work of um, you know, recording and speaking and um, remembering the names of the dead and accepting ordinances, um, performing ordinances on their behalf. That's one important thing that we do in temples. Um, another thing that's important about temples, I mean, why did the saints work so hard to build the Kirtland Temple, the Nauvoo Temple? Um, God commanded them to. God commanded them to build this place which could be dedicated as God's house. Eliza R. Snow was one of the people who was there in the Kirtland Temple on the day that it was dedicated when the saints, they had been long expecting some sort of endowment of power. And many people said they, they felt the power of God. They said they, they felt a sound like a freight train. It's this rushing of wind. Because the saints were expecting that power in the, on the day of the Kirtland Temple, I think that's one of the reasons why they experienced it so powerfully. So there's something about when we prepare to go to the temple, 
it's not just we get in the car and we drive there, right? We're thinking about the things that we have to do, the clothes we've got to bring, the, um, the way we've got to kind of prepare ourselves, the way we've got to kind of check in with ourselves to think, is, am I ready to be in this sacred place? Am I ready to go looking for God? So that expectation, that preparation, there's something that, that teaches us, just the process of that. And I think you're so right. And I think I've, there's so many times when I haven't really prepared. I've just like, it's a to-do list. Oh, I've got to go to the temple, mm-hmm. you know? And there are, there are many times, I can probably count on my hand, you know, and I've been so many times in the temple, but count on my hand the times when I've really, you know, said, Heavenly Father, let me feel you while I'm there. Let it not be just a to-do list and get there and just, okay, that's good. Done that for the month, you know? And I remember having that prayer beforehand one time and and reading and studying more than I usually did. And then when I went there, I I literally just felt just this lightness, just this feeling of just, um, uh, of just, I'm I'm so happy that you're here. Not that he wasn't happy than the other times, but maybe for the first time I could feel it because of my input and my work. So, um, Alex, you have eight kids. Yeah. What are you and your wife doing to kind of establish this idea of temples are sacred places, temples are where we go and make covenants with God? What does that look like in your home? I think really is that I like to try and have them see me going, have them literally have my bag and I let them know where I'm going or I let them know where I went. You know, and I think that even just something like that, because kids follow, kids, kids remember, you know. Melissa, how have you used temples to strengthen your relationship with our heavenly parents? So the first time I went to the temple I, in Los Angeles, I wasn't really prepared. I didn't know what to expect. I just got super distracted and I did not have a good experience. And so I think today, actually, young people have a lot more resources to prepare for the temple. I just wasn't very prepared. Right after that, I, did, I was doing some research for my senior thesis, and I went to Taiwan. And the place where I stayed in Taiwan was the temple annex, like, I guess, wow. patron housing. Okay. And I, every single day, I went to the temple, and I got to know, like, the temple workers. And it just gave me a different perspective about the temple as a place of work. Because the the first time I was like, you know, I'm supposed to have this amazing experience and I didn't have that experience. So then I like didn't know what I was in the temple for. But then um, in the Taipei temple over the course of a summer, I had kind of had a faith crisis. Um, But then going to the temple every day and doing this work of, of kind of just becoming familiar with the temple ceremony and seeing the temple workers and how, you know, how they move things around and, and the work that they did. It changed my view of the temple, and I began to feel the quietness and the peace of the temple. And all of those expectations and kind of ideas that I had had were able to kind of be calm. Just through the process, going over and over again, um, I began to feel that peace and that stillness. You know, I think it's clear today that President Nelson is emphasizing the temple with not only with the temples that are being built, with our encouragement to attend the temple and to gather Israel, which a lot of that is performed in temples. With the covenants we make, with the revelation that we can receive, it really does drive home this this topic that temples connect us with heaven. I'm excited to bring up other things from this chapter in the footnotes portion of this episode, but let's go ahead and jump on into the next topic. I think the happiest temple memory I have is when I went and received my own endowment 
for the first time. Um, I was with my whole family. They got to come and be there. Me and my whole family is a co are converts, and so we were all able to get sealed in the Celestial Room, and it was such a unique experience, and I was so grateful to have that at such a young age. I was struggling with the decision, and I just felt like the Lord told me to go to the temple, and I felt like the Lord gave me just something very clear. I felt the joys of being in the temple and being in that room for the first time ever. It was such an overwhelming feeling and brought me to tears. The second topic for today's discussion is the Savior can help us overcome discord in our families. So Melissa, in these chapters, we have several examples of family discord. Do you want to give us just a few little highlights? Sure. Okay, so the first one is um, Jacob and his father-in-law, Laban. Uh, Laban exploits his labor and doesn't pay him properly and tries to kind of use him. Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, and he worked seven years for her, but Laban swaps Leah for Rachel in a kind of poetic echo of That's Jacob's cold. swapping That's himself for Esau. And, and then um, Jacob says, why have you deceived me? And he's very angry, but then he has to work seven more years. So, and then, of course, this creates a problem because Jacob only ever meant to marry Rachel, mm -hmm. uh, at least at first. And so um, it says that Jacob loved Rachel, but um, didn't love Leah. And so then Leah feels terrible, as you would if you were married to someone mm -hmm. who didn't mean to marry you. And, um, and then there's a kind of like fertility arms race. Um, <laughs> who, has, who can have sons? Um, Leah's, uh, says the Lord opens Leah's womb, so she has uh, many children. And Rachel's not able to have children. And so then Rachel um, takes her slave girl, Bilhah, and gives her to Jacob and says, you know, at least I can have children through her. But then Leah, like, then kind of joins this the fray and um, takes her slave girl, girl, Zilpah, and gives her to Jacob as a wife. So now Jacob has four wives. Um, the four wives have to live with each other. And then on top of that, kind of Looming over the whole situation, we have Jacob and Esau. Mm. Jacob is, is living in this faraway land in the east because he's afraid to go home. Because if he goes home, his brother might kill him. So it's wow. tricky. That's a lot. You know, and we are, are no strangers to family discord. I think we can all think of certain incidences in our families where it exists. So that's why we're happy to talk about this and how do we, do, do we deal with this. Um, and so we have a question from one of our viewers that we want to go to, and then I'd love to get your reaction to this. My name is Mary Louise. I live in Murray, Utah. And like most parents, my husband and I are very glad that our children have grown up to think for themselves. But recently, some of them have had some opinions and priorities that have brought some discord into our family. I would love some advice as to how we might unify and strengthen our family and really bring it together. Thank you. I love that. You know, uh, I think sometimes we as, it goes both ways. Sometimes we as parents, we have this cookie cutter idea of how our kids are supposed to be. And I've been on both ends, you know, of that. And one thing that I, I realize is that there's that scripture, what's that scripture that talks about how agree with thine adversary, lest they esteem thee as thine enemy. So what's the first thing we do? Oh, I totally disagree. You di now I'm your enemy, <laughs> right? So one thing I'd learned from that is before I open my mouth, I just try and find ways to connect and even agree 
in some way, shape or form, because maybe there's something that I could at least agree on on that. And one thing I could find is that maybe down the line, it won't be a, such a thing to, to bring the discord. Because and, and anything, let's face it, can bring discord in our family if we let it. So Alex, you have an amazing story of, of your life. And I want to give you the opportunity to share how has the Savior helped you overcome uh, a lot of the discord that has existed throughout your life? Yeah, there was definitely a lot of discord in my family. Um, I, uh, I grew up with no dad and my mom raised me. And, and um, one time when I was 11 years old, she was going away for three weeks to Nigeria, because that's where we're from originally. And she said she'd be away for three weeks. I didn't see her for eight years. Uh, not one letter, like nothing. I, I, I didn't hear anything from her. And um, I was stuck at this boarding school. And then during the vacation times, I'd stay with my uncle. My uncle was abusive. When I joined the church at 16, um, he did not want me to join. He was mad. He was angry. In fact, when the missionaries came to my house, and I was so excited because the first time they came to my house, my house lit up. This was during the day because my house was so dark spiritually. And then I remember afterwards when the sister missionaries had left, he said, if you ever bring those people into my house again, I'll kill you. That's what he said. And I was scared of him. And I kind of almost believed it. So I called the sister missionaries up next day. I said, you can't come to my house anymore. And I was, you got, I'm on the other end, I'm crying my eyes out because I didn't want to say this, but I wanted to say this to protect either me or them. I said, you can't come anymore. I cried out to the Lord and said, Heavenly Father, why? You bring this great experience, these wonderful sisters into my life, and then you just send them away. That's what the Lord said. I didn't send them away. You did. Call them back. So they came back. Three weeks later, I joined, became a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Three weeks later. Three weeks later. Sometimes that's the way it goes. When you're trying to live the right way, there are family members that hate on you for it because what they think you're doing is you're separating yourself from them. And so my goal is having to, without trying to belittle myself and be small so that I could have them with me, I got to let them know who I am, but I got to also let them know who they are, that we are all in the same boat, that we're all incredible, all special. So there was always this back and forth in my family just growing up constantly. Now my mom joined the church three years ago. I went home and I baptized her, which was amazing. And we talked about these whole stories. As far as the, the reconciliation goes, you know, you, you, you don't see your mother for eight years and all of a sudden you're baptizing her. Yeah. How do you get to that point where you can move on, you can forgive? What's the, what's the strategy? Well, I started realizing that for my kids, I kept bringing up the experiences that I was going through into my new family. And it was hurting them because it's poison. And there are many of us that walk around poisonous and it affects us. It affects our relationships with other people. But most importantly, it affects, it affects the relationship with ourselves because we have to realize that we cannot be, we're trying to be like the Savior. We cannot if we're harboring. Because I remember I asked the Lord, how can, be a better, how can I be a better father to my kids? The Lord said, let it go. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm going to ask the audience, uh, Melissa's going to tell us what happened with Jacob and Esau. And knowing their history, 
Uh, I want you guys to be thinking about what is a lesson that we learn from either side of this story. Okay, so if we look at uh, Genesis chapter 32, um, Jacob is getting ready to go home. The first thing we know is um, Jacob sends a message to Esau um, to kind of test the waters. And what he finds is that the messengers um, say there's no verbal response from Esau. We have no idea what Esau's thinking. We just know that Esau's coming with 400 men. And then Jacob goes and sees Esau and um, he uses very deferential language. So for example, in um, Genesis chapter 33, um, verse six, uh, Esau says, who are these with you? And he says, the children with whom God has favored your servant. Um, verse nine, to find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So he's just being super, super deferential, very sensitive to this pronouncement that he was, Jacob was going to be the Lord and Esau was going to be the servant. So he's really working hard to kind of restore equity, at least through his words. Um, and then, you know, they, they embrace each other, they weep, and then they go on their separate ways to, to live, not wanting to kill each other. Okay, so there's, there's some really good things that you, you mentioned there when it, when it comes to reconciliation uh, between Jacob and Esau. Uh, from anybody in the audience, what did you notice in that uh, account? Some things that Jacob or Esau did to help in this reconciliation process between the two of them. Jamie, go ahead. Jacob chose his words wisely. He was trying to make sure that he was using words that were peaceable and, and fair to his brother. And so he was trying to find that common ground with his brother and, and use words that would bring them closer together and, and resolve their issues rather than trying to use words or, or things that would drive them apart. Yeah, it's like he, um, he's very patient yeah. and careful. You know, I think is a key word. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. You know, we earlier we were talking about Esau and how sometimes he kind of gets a bad rap. From this point of reconciliation, somebody is coming to him. What sort of actions is Esau doing that we can learn from when it comes to healing some of this discord that can exist in family situations? Well, like right here where it says, Esau ran to meet him. Esau embraced, he ran, Esau fell on his neck, Esau kissed him, and then what happened? They both wept. They wept. So our actions can affect the other person when they see our, how genuine we are. I love that. And, and that's not an easy thing to do. No. So what is the role of the Holy Ghost when it comes to seeking reconciliation or healing that disaccord within a family? I'm not thinking of a family situation, but there was this one time when I was bitterly complaining about someone in my life who really annoyed me, who I thought was not doing their job right. And it was like, why, if they would only listen to me, we could <laughs> fix all these things. And um, I was speaking with a rather blunt person, um, a kind of mentor, and she said, who are you <laughs> to like, yes. say these things? And I was, it felt kind of devastating, but at the same time, I felt this kind of quiet, like confirmation. I, I, and I recognized the feeling of the spirit. I felt very low, but also like really calm and, and no longer angry. And, and, and this is not to say that I think that we should like belittle ourselves or not use our voices. But in this particular situation, I just felt the spirit say like, it's fine. Like, you don't have to fix this. 
and maybe you're not as like all knowing as you think you are, <laughs> which which I needed to feel, and I felt it, and I, I knew that that was the and spirit. good for you for for listening. <laughs> no, that's hard. That's not always easy. Alex, how about you? I remember my wife whenever my kids complain, she'd say, "Okay, now tell me three good things." So if they'd say something bad about one of the kids, because now okay, now tell me three good things about that person. Really, I think that's what it is around the world way, going back to embracing that gratitude. Um, it's just like I, I had a friend of mine that wanted to divorce his wife, you know, and uh, his bishop said, just give it a month and just write down everything that you loved about her from the beginning. And then after that, if anything's different, go ahead and divorce her. <laughs> and they're still married. Wow. Um, sometimes we just got to remember the good things. Sometimes we got to remember why they are in our family and, and the goodness of them. And again, it's not an easy thing, but the spirit can make anything easy. When we open up and say, Lord, please help me, help thou my unbelief, Yeah. right? Because you don't believe that you're going to have this reconciliation. Help thou my unbelief. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. I would love to hear an example from the audience on what is the role of the Holy Ghost when you're seeking to heal discord or seek reconciliation? Betsy, please. Okay. Um, I, I, we had a situation in my family where one of our members was just being a, just abominable. So I was in the same room with them and um, we were dealing with the situation. All of a sudden, I just felt the pure love of Christ. And I, I felt that I was feeling how He felt towards her. Mm. And it was this just incredible love mixed with this incredible sadness. And I think the sadness is what just hit me so hard. It was really like a father. And after that, I could, you know, I could relate and I could try to forgive and be more open to kind of helping instead of condemning and, you know, being antagonistic towards the whole situation. You know, that's, was, that's beautiful. I love, because sometimes when we talk about, you know, feelings of the spirit, I love how you mentioned that you were able to see through the eyes of the Savior how he saw her. What an amazing gift that that is, you know, so that you could have those similar feelings that he has for her. You know, uh, there's a, a beautiful quote from Joseph Smith in regards to this. He says, ever keep and exercise the principle of mercy and be ready to forgive our brother on the first intimations of repentance and asking forgiveness. And should we even forgive our brother or even our enemy before he repent or ask forgiveness? our Heavenly Father would be equally as merciful unto us. I love talking about temples, um, how the temple connects us to heaven, and how through the Savior, we can get the help that we need to overcome discord in our families. I'm excited to jump into our footnotes portion. We're getting, getting a little in, in depth into some of these, these chapters. I think what we can do to reconcile difficult uh, relationships in our lives is um, to kind of open our minds. Just seeing them as, a, as another child of God and um, humbling myself enough to see that and to love them for that and to see the potential that they have. 
try and understand uh, the other person's side, where they're coming from. We don't have to 100% agree with them or, or like what they're saying, but to show respect and to show an open mind, I think is important in resolving those conflicts. Maybe pray for them, pray for me to understand them a little bit more because I feel like that comes usually with a misunderstanding and miscommunication. So if I can pray to better understand, then that should solve the problem. Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes. We're excited to have a new guest with us, Jenny Reeder, who is a church historian. Jenny, tell us a little more information about yourself. I am the 19th century women's history specialist for the church up in Salt Lake, and I love my job. I am from Provo, Utah. I'm proud of it. Um, I went to graduate school on the East Coast for nine years. I was in New York City for two years and then in Northern Virginia, just outside of D.C. for seven years, George Mason University. We're glad to have you here with us, and we're, we're happy to learn from you. I'm excited to be here. So in the previous discussion, uh, we talked about uh, temples and how uh, temples can connect us with heaven. And we also talked about uh, how the Savior can help us overcome discord uh, in our families. And one of the topics kind of dealing with that, you know, we, we get into this— um, plural marriages. And plural marriages that took place back in the Old Testament times, we know in our church there has been a history of plural marriage, and it's kind of a controversial topic. So, um, Jenny, would you mind, help us understand uh, a little bit more about plural marriage? That's a great question. But I think in order to fully understand it, we need to go back a generation to Abraham and Sarah. And we need to talk just a minute about the Abrahamic covenant and the house of Israel. Now, as baptized members of the church, we are all part of the House of Israel, and we have access to the Abrahamic Covenant, and it's incredible. So if we just review that quickly, we know that Abraham was promised land and seed and deliverance mm. and um, the priesthood, and we could go on and on, but let's focus on just those things quickly. He was, he was promised uh, an inheritance of specific land. Um, and he was also promised seed, and I love this line, I think this is the most important part of this, is seed as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. That's a lot of wow. seed. Um, but he was also promised uh, deliverance, and the covenant that he made with the Lord was part of this grand uh, priesthood, this family priesthood. Now, one thing I think we have to remember about Joseph is that his understanding of the restoration and of the house of Israel and the Abrahamic covenant came in bits and pieces. It didn't, he didn't get the handbook when he was in the sacred grove. So he had to sort of figure it out and ask questions and receive answers. And I actually love that because I feel like that's how my life is. It's kind of a in, in fits and spurts. And I get revelation here and there, and I know where I need to go because of that. And I ask a lot of questions. So where does plural marriage fall into all of this? So I think it goes back to that promise in the Abrahamic covenant of uh, posterity as sands of the sea and stars in the sky. Now remember, who was Abraham's wife? Sarah. And how old was she? 99? Something old. She was old. She was past childbearing years. And Abraham was given this promise. They didn't know how this covenant was going to work out. And so they, they figured out that Sarah should give her handmaid, Hagar, to Abraham. 
and Hagar bore a son, um, but then Sarah bore a, a son. So that, um, in my understanding, is, the, is one of the first uh, examples of polygamy in the Bible. And we see that. Melissa, you were talking about uh, Jacob and his wives. It's a similar situation. So he marries Leah and then Rachel. Um, but then Rachel isn't able to conceive. And so she gives her slave girl, King James translates it as handmaid, but they were someone who could be bought and sold and just given away like property. So mm -hmm. um, she gives her slave girl to Jacob um, also for bearing children. And then Leah does the same thing with her slave girl. So plural marriage is something that I think as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is we're very familiar with it. And I don't know if uh, a lot of us realize that you were mentioning something like this before, uh, Alex. This is not something that is unique to our religion yeah. or culture. Yeah, I'm from African culture. My dad, not a, he died, you know, 10 years ago. He doesn't know anything about uh, being a Latter-day Saint. As much as we know now. Yes, maybe now he, he does. knows way more than I do, right? <laughs> but he had three wives, mm -hmm. you know? So for, for a religion uh, such as ours that focuses so heavily on a monogamous marriage, um, what do we make of the, our past with polygamy um, as it is in just stark contrast to our views on marriage today? You know, Jenny is talking about Joseph Smith thinking about the Old Testament and about the Bible, and he's concerned with restoring not just the New Testament, but also things in the Old Testament, like the temple, right? The temple is a, starts in the Old Testament. So Joseph Smith has this very broad idea of restoration. That's kind of one theological tenant. And then another one is a um, sense of sealing, mm -hmm. right? Linking people together in these eternal relationships. So very permanent, mm -hmm. long-term family relationships. So Samuel Brown is a historian. Well, he's actually many things, but he, he wrote a book of history where he talks about how um, in the 19th century, most people were serial monogamous. That means um, they would marry someone, and often that person died. They'd marry someone else. That person would die. Mm. They'd marry someone else. Okay. So in the course of their life, they would have been married to maybe three or four people. Sure. And then if you say, now your marriages can be permanent, um, can be eternal, that kind of makes everyone married to lots of different people. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah. So, so it's just a, it's a kind of broad thinking about marriage relationships. Mm -hmm. And it stood in stark contrast, this kind of very religious, um, not, not just very religious, but this kind of expansive idea of family relationships stood in stark contrast to the Victorian notions of marriage at the time. So, um, so it was very countercultural. We were uh, a very alternative community when it came to our family theologies, our teachings about the meanings of family, the definitions of family. Right. And I think we even today, that's the Hollywood version of marriage mm -hmm. and romantic love. Right. Um, but I love how, I feel like Joseph really expanded the definition of family. Um, I love section 130 that comes just two sections before 132, the famous polygamy section, where he says in verse two, that same sociality which exists among us here will exist among us there only it will be coupled with eternal glory, which glory we do not now enjoy. That's significant. I mean, that's not just family, but that's my friends and my people. And I'm so grateful for that. So I think Joseph had a very expansive idea of what family was and what the house of Israel was. And he wanted to make the Abrahamic covenant available to everyone.
So in my interpretation, I think it's important to to think about it that way and to think about the women that were in his life. Some of them had been orphaned or some were not married um, and they were part of the family. And so I wonder if maybe he thought this same sociality Mm. that exists here can exist there. But I also wonder if he wanted to give access to this family priesthood to these women that had no way of connecting to it. The tricky part comes when there is marital relations uh. involved. And in 1842, some of the, this was all kept very private and confidential in Nauvoo. And I think that's where it kind of takes a turn. And eventually Emma learns about other um, women married to her husband that she didn't know about. And that felt like a huge betrayal, especially because some of them were her dear friends and Relief Society members. And so that took a turn, and we get Section 132, which talks about not only celestial marriage, the new and everlasting covenant, which isn't always polygamy, but also plural marriage. Right. So can I just add there, Jenny? Um, So we know what Joseph was trying to do, this kind of grand theological plan. Mm -hmm. But for the women and the men who had grown up, you know, their whole life, this kind of Victorian orientation, um, it was shocking and devastating. The women who who entered into um, plural marriage often said at first when they heard about it, it was this huge um, trial for them. Mm -hmm. They they just didn't know what was right, what was wrong. So in, in real life, it was tricky. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and we see this in the scriptures as well. You know, we see that Rachel was the one who said, um, Jacob, maybe you should um, marry my slave girl. Um, but then she, that didn't make her feel much better no. necessarily. Right. So so it's tricky. We have this, this grand idea. And, and I think um, I don't, I don't want to minimize the, the fears of, of women, for example, Absolutely. who say what's going to happen you know, in the afterlife. And in, in a recent um, interview, you know, Kate Holbrook pointed out, and as we've talked about before, that you know, marriage is a relationship of agency, like agencies involved. No one's going to be forced into any sort of situation eternally. Um, that's just how it works. So I think we can, we can set our minds at rest on that, um, that no one will be forced into a situation that they hate. We can also acknowledge the huge sacrifices, especially mm-hmm. made by women at that time. So Jenny, Melissa, you guys are historians, and I'm sure you come across similar things. Um, has there been something specific, uh, maybe we'll start with you, Melissa, that has come up in, in church history that at first maybe doesn't sit right, and maybe even now doesn't sit right, but how do you stay on that covenant path while still dealing with some of these issues that you come across? Well, this is absolutely the issue. So the, the, the summer that I met Jenny, I was um, at a seminar at BYU. That summer was a summer right before I was married. And it was also the summer where we met in this library where there were all these books on the wall of history. And so I read all the books on plural marriage that summer. And I would be walking around with my fiance, Joseph, and all of a sudden I'd just like punch him. (laughs) (laughs) And he'd be like, what? And he'd be like, oh, it just makes me so mad. Mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, from from a feminist point of view, the math is incontrovertible. You know, one man multiple women, it's just, um, that's, that's the structure of it. And, it. and it made me mad. And it made me think, do I want to enter into a marriage in this church, which has this history? And then the more I learned about plural marriage, um, and I learned about the actual women who had entered into plural marriage, 
the more I began to see that um, they were fully aware of the difficult structure that they were entering. Fully aware. It was a part of their daily reality. And, and yet they did it because they, they saw it as a religious practice. They were trying to be selfless. They were trying to make a sacrifice. And it was a Herculean sacrifice. Absolutely. I can't think of wow. anything more difficult than, um, than giving up that exclusive relationship with my husband. And um, they talked about how it was a trial of their feelings, like Sarah Rich. They talked about how, um, how you know, all the things that they had to do. And yet I had to admire their strength, their commitment, their belief in the gospel. Um, as, as other people have pointed out, it was also a way to take care of, the, of women who were poor. Um, sometimes women proposed to men. And they, you just kind of attach yourself to, to people who had means and resources. So it, it was very, it was much more complex from economic, a social, um, and also a religious point of view. And I came to respect those women and, and to just feel like, oh, so sad. Their lives were so horrible. I'm so glad we don't have to do that today. That totally disrespects their choices as women and mm. their strength as women. And it's not very feminist wow. to do yeah. that. And to answer your previous question, I think this is important, Melissa, is that the early women that were asked later wrote about their sort of conversion experience to plural marriage, where they asked God, and they received very intense and personal revelation that they should do that. And um, I think that's beautiful. And they wrote about that later, and I respect that and value that. And I'm grateful that I don't have to ask that question today. Mm -hmm. But I, it's, you can't deny their testimony of it. It's really incredible. So we're talking specifically about plural marriage. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm, I'm sure that everybody has their trial of faith. How, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with things when they come up? You know, maybe it's something that you, you read about in church history about polygamy, or maybe it's something, you know, controversial you know, like blacks in the priesthood or something that really tests your faith. Mm -hmm. what, what's the key to, to really trying to see from the lens of the writers back in these days and how we deal with it in modern times? You know, it's funny when you talk about the blacks in the priesthood, I didn't even know anything about that until I was on my mission. And what year was that? And I went on my mission, 91 to 93, okay. I served in England, Bristol mission. And I remember I was out uh, tracking, we were in the shopping mall we had this box of Book of Mormons and I was having a ball. I was giving them away. You know, I got the big mouth. I'm moonwalking in the parking lot. But there was this guy who was standing right next to me. I kind of felt this energy, felt really uncomfortable. It was like he was waiting for his time. And finally, after people had kind of dissipated, he came up to me and he said, you know, he says, well, why are you a member of this church? He says, how can you be a member of this church when people didn't allow people of your color to be a member of this church? And I remember just laughing. I was just like, <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, I know what you're trying to do, but it's too late because I'm already converted. And I remember going back to my apartment and my uh, companion, who's 27 years old from Germany, Elder Buckelman, I sat with him and I said, do you know anything about this? <laughs> Fair question. <laughs> he said, I don't know. And I just remember just thinking to myself, what? And I had to go and do a come to Jesus with myself again, where I just literally con conversed with the Lord. And I just had this peace. And it wasn't an answer. 
It was just peace. And what I realized very, very quickly was that that peace became my answer until I got to the point where intellectually I could get to learn more and understand more about it. And I know and learn and understand about it now. So I guess what I'm saying is it's almost like that Abraham, you know, why are you, why are you praising the Lord? I, I, I know not save the Lord. You know, you know, why are you doing these covenants? What was it when uh, the Lord said that to Adam? Adam, Adam uh-huh. I know not save the, the Lord, Lord commanded, commanded me. me. And so I, I just knew, I know not save the Lord directed me to his church. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That became something that had to be solid. If that weren't solid, then that testimony of what he just did, it would have broken everything about me. So I was so grateful for my testimony. I know it sounds really kind of like weird. It's like my testimony was so strong that that, even though it was an issue, it did not break me or break my testimony. You better get your testimony straight. Yeah. So that when those things are revealed, you're still good. Because there's more. Stick around, bro. This is this is this is a church of change. This is a restora a restorative church, meaning there's there's the restoration wasn't just a one-time thing. There's gonna be more things that are gonna continually be restored. And so I have to stay on that path. And it's the Book of Mormon, reading that on a regular basis and just reading scriptures and connecting with deity as often as I can on a daily basis, which protects me mm -hmm. from those doubters and those doubts. I love it. Okay, one of the beautiful things about footnotes is that we can jump around and talk about whatever we want. And so before we end this, I really wanna talk about something that we see that is very common, specifically with this story we're talking about, and that of uh, infertility. Not only you know, from the, the scriptural text, um, but in, in general, because there are a lot of people that, that deal with infertility and can be really hard. And I can imagine that could, there could be some blaming of, of God. Um, or what, are your, what are your thoughts? What have you come across in your studies? I can totally speak to that personally. I've had cancer and chemo and radiation and bone marrow transplants, and I'm barren. I'll never be able to have children. And that breaks my heart. Um, and I've really thought about, thank you. I have nieces and nephews that I love, um, but I've really thought about what does it mean to multiply and replenish the earth and to fill the measure of my creation. And I really think me personally, I've had to expand my definitions. Mm. I wrote a book about Emma and that is part of my offspring. That is part of my procreation. And one day I know also that I will be compensated for everything that I may have lost in this world. Oh my gosh, preach sister. Right? I love that. So wow. I look forward to that day and I will have that opportunity, prob probably not in this life unless it's like a miracle like Sarah. You know, there's one thing that Zina Huntington Jacobs, who married Joseph after she married her husband, Henry, there's one thing that her husband, Henry, said um, when their divorce was made clear. He was on a mission. He still loved Zina. Um, but he said this, and I'll never forget it. There may be twistings and turnings in this life, but in the next life, it will all work out. I love it. What and a beautiful testimony. So I think it comes down to the fact is, do I know that I am the child of heavenly parents mm -hmm. who know me and care about me? 
and who want me to succeed and have every blessing as a member of the house of Israel. That's beautiful. Wow, thank you. All right, Alex, can you just tell us um, how has your testimony in Jesus Christ strengthened because you have had to overcome a difficulty in your life? When I joined the church, a week after I joined the church, my uncle kicked me out of the house because he found out that I joined the church. And um, I remember walking in, in the rain. So I stepped in this white van, it was kind of open, it was just beat up and everything. And I was just like beating on the, beating on the uh, steering wheel. I was cussing, I was swearing, I was swearing, I was mad at myself, I was mad at God. And I just felt like, what is this? And uh, I remember as I was in um, the van and screaming out to God, and I just heard this voice. And it was like, Alex, you, will you now let me speak? I said, yeah. And the Lord said, take up your scriptures. You know, the one you just threw out the window. I said, okay, so I get out. All right, can I, can I pause? Mm-hmm. And the Lord said, turn to, and, and this, is, this, is, this is something that's familiar. Everybody knows these, this scripture. This is the 122nd section, Doctrine and Covenants. That's where the Lord told me to turn to. And it is all that I call them the if chapter. Mm. If this happens, it's if that all the worst circumstances, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, right? And it says, know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience, shall be for thy good. And then this is the one. This was the kicker. This is what changed my life forever in that white van. He says, oh, and, be, and by the way, Alex Boyer, right? Put your name in it. Mm-hmm. The son of man have descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? How you can respond to that? And then a flood of things, of the, the suffering of our Savior in Gethsemane just flooded my mind, all my sense, senses. And I felt it. And that was the day I promised the Lord that I would never, ever murmur again on whatever it is, my lot that has been allotted, that was hard. Wow, what an inspirational story. Thank you for sharing that, Melissa. Thank you for being here. Jenny, so great to have you join us in Footnotes. Thank you. I wanna thank all of you at home for watching. This has been a great discussion from the books of Genesis, chapters 28 through 33. Please join us next time for another episode of Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.